Welcome to Redesigning High School. It's our podcast for parents and anyone else who might be interested in how we might remake school for the benefit of students. My name is Terry DeBow. I'm an English teacher and the director of special projects here at Hawkins School, which is outside of rainy, gray Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm Julia Griffin, director of the Mastery School of Hawken, and I am eagerly anticipating the snow that we expect this weekend. Are, is it? Oh, yeah, no joke. Snow. It's the most Cleveland statement ever. The last weekend in April, we're expecting snow. Because I looked at the weather <laughs> thing the other day, and it uh-huh. was like, we were talking about the open house for the mm-hmm. Mastery School, and I was like, it says 60 and sunny, so it's probably going to be 40 and snowy, and it really is going to be 40 and sunny? No joke. I'll show you the, I'll show you the screenshot. Oh, my yeah. Lord. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. What are we doing? Okay. Listen, yeah. I already said who I am. All right. <laughs> Julia. <laughs> Can you feel it? Uh, yes? No? You don't know what <laughs> you I'm gotta saying. You got to go on. All right. The, all right. So like, the car is either sputtering uh, and trying to eke out the last 100 yards to the finish line of our semester, or the momentum is like throwing us towards this uh, the finish line. Because we're just we're so excited about our classes and we're so excited about learning that we just damn the the calendar, damn the torpedoes. We are just going to learn as much as we can until the calendar says we're done. So, which side of the fence are you? Are you sputtering? Or are you just catapulting? I think I'm like the seniors who are in the middle of senior week and they had senior prank day yesterday. Who have been riding around campus all day, all week on these little, on their big wheels cars, right. which is, I'm like, not quite the right size for the car, and it's not going quite <laughs> as fast as I want it to, but I'm trying as hard as I can. Yeah, that's how I feel. That's how you feel. Yeah. Uh, I'm on the sputtering side. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. <laughs> it's tiring. It is. And then, you know, part of what we have to do is like, we have intensives in a couple weeks, right? So true. Not a couple, like 10 days. Yeah, but I've who's counting? Yeah. Me. Yeah. I have 18 kids coming, a new class. I've mm-hmm. got to get all the – anyway, mm-hmm. it's – it's and it's gray, and evidently going to snow again. So <laughs> this is fantastic. Um, so we've got, I think, a great episode. Um, we yeah. We did an, uh, did an interview the other day um, with Dr. Neil Mehta, who is the Associate Dean for Curricular Affairs at the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine. He's also just like one of the – nicest men i've ever met mm. and he's he wonderful. is uh he's wonderful and he's also the parent of a hawk and alum uh Seisha, and uh he's also very importantly um sort of one of the chief scott looney whisperers uh he was uh who's sort of helped scott and hawken um scott's our head of school obviously um really dig into this idea of problem-based learning and mastery-based assessment because that's what the Learner College of Medicine at Cleveland Clinic has done. They've really embraced it, uh, this paradigm shift for years now, and they use problem-based um, a, a problem-based approach and feedback and reflection to prepare medical students for careers. And that seems to be really interesting because those jobs seem really content-heavy, Right. Well, I think what the case example of medical education really shows us is that uh, that content and skills uh, are not separable and that it's a false dichotomy. And so right. the idea that you could have an education that was only content doesn't work and that in medical education where the stakes are really high, they figured that out a while ago. And so there actually are a number of colleges that of, of medical schools that have problem-based models because they've realized that it works to create right. thoughtful, flexible, 
problem solvers. And that's much more important right. than somebody who's memorized all the content but doesn't know what to do with it. Right. So we, we heard about this. We've known him for, for a while, and it just occurred to us that we should probably talk about this and get him on our little podcast here because um, if, if a college of medicine can that's right. prepare doctors for the MCAT or whatever, is that what they do? I'm an English teacher. What test do they take? Uh, the USMLE. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. And then to eventually, you know, take care of patients. Oh, yeah, that's right. That they have to too. take care of patients, too. Mm-hmm. So if, they, if, if those people can do that through right. a problem-based approach and a master-based approach, then surely a high school can figure it out. That's right. Right? So that was the, the logic. Um, and he's a really inspirational guy. And so yeah. hopefully our listeners, uh, of which there are are, are many – uh, from what our little uh, analytics are telling us, although we found out that our we had our first analytics said we had like thousands, and then it, I think it righted itself, and now it's in the hundred, which is fine. But we'd like mm-hmm. to grow it, of course. You know, it yeah. Works. And we want your feedback in order to be able to do that. By the way, yes. so write and tell us what you like. What you want more of, what you want less of, right. by the way. Yeah, maybe they want less of this, the banter. Um, but you can go to Redesigning School. There, uh, there's a little a place where you can send us a note. Anyway, uh, before we get to Dr. Mehta, though, we have to do our thing, which yeah. is to think about the best and the worst of the week or the last bit. So yeah. have you got something for us? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I want to shout out the Humanities 10 team at – Hawken at the upper school who have been doing really great work. Um, They had a totally new final unit for Mm. their course this year. And this is a team of four teachers working together. Um, uh, And they took the, this humanities 10 course with, which grapples with the history and literature of the modern world. And a lot of, a lot of it focuses on the 20th century. And I have to tell you, Terry, the story of the 20th, 20th century is a dark one. It's a bleak one. Yeah. There's a lot. Yeah. I mean, we used to joke that we would call the class inhumanity um, because there's so much in there that's dark. And so in looking for a way to not create a false positive, but to um, spotlight stories of activism and growth and possibility, um, they created this project on human rights and students have a lot of choice and they write a research paper on a particular case study around human rights spinning off of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Um, but they also then created these infographics um, to highlight and share some of the key findings of their research. So those are going up around school and I'm excited to see them. They presented a little in school meeting uh, to right. give an ex- explanation of what they're up to. Um, and I just I just love seeing that collaboration, how much thoughtful preparation of kids went in there and that the team is really looking for ways to um, give students practice in traditional skills, but also give them some non-traditional ways to represent their learning. Right. So that was really cool to see. Yeah. No, it, it's it's going to be great to have them around school. I'll take some photos and throw them up on the Instagram account so people can see them. But, That'd be great. Um, yeah, no, it's an interesting way to grapple with history in a way that feels real. Yeah. Um, and then maybe give you a sense that you can do something about it. And you know, I've got a similar situation in my media literacy class, like moving towards activism and mm-hmm. realizing that this era, they have tools that, you know, it's unprecedented what Absolutely. human beings can do to make content and then distribute content mm-hmm. um, away from the gatekeepers um, and maybe feel a little bit empowered instead of powerless when you feel the full brunt of all the inhumanity that <laughs> exactly <laughs> that we've been generating for the last I don't know millennia or two yeah um, so all right I will do what about you I will do a um, a right down the middle best worst <laughs> like, oh good a little bit of everything a little bit of 
it's just it's not it's not the best, it's not the worst, but I will say I'm grateful. Which okay. is that as I mentioned, I've got this intensive coming up in a couple weeks, and it's a journalism mm-hmm. um, class, and so we will be down at our urban campus, the Greece Center. And my first, the first assignment is they have to go do a news story about four hours into the class. And again, this is one of those intensives. So it's seven hours a day, three weeks long. It counts as a semester. So there's no, no time to rest. And so as soon as they learn a little bit about journalism, they'll go do journalism. And so that means I have 18 students and they need 18 news stories next Wednesday or whatever it is, two Wednesdays, I think. Um, so I've been calling uh, the university's uh, UCI um, and University Circle, and they have wonderful people there who are mm-hmm. helping me identify uh, different partners, different uh, organizations, different news stories, whether it's, you know, the, um, you know, a building plan that's going on in Little Italy here in Cleveland um, or a new art exhibit at the uh, art museum. And we're going to have students in the circle um, in a couple of weeks and they're going to be talking to adults and they're going to be doing news stories. And it would have brought up to me is just how powerful it is to have partners in a community who can help kids get help teachers get kids out into the world yes. um, and how excited they were. I mean, it was four thirty on a Tuesday. I was talking to uh, our, our contacts there and I was, I was ready to go home or pretend to go to the gym or whatever it was. And she was <laughs> like, this is fantastic. We're really excited. We'll have this person call this person and we'll send this email. And it's like, wow, you know, you, the power of, of, of partners and the excitement that they have of working with, with teenagers. And I think there's a lesson there, right? That Absolutely. there are more adults out there in the world who are excited about helping students than maybe we, we assume. Absolutely. You know, it's funny in the, that's wonderful to hear. And I, that's been my experience as well as I just in the last few weeks um, have started to connect with some of the neighbors in the University Circle in Glenville neighborhood that we'll be spending more and more time in over the next few years. Um, but also, I would say even before then, um, when we do these you know, these kind of Corda method um, macro courses that rely on community partners. Yeah. The piece that as teachers, I think we always are most worried about when we first are doing it is, well, how will we find a partner and will anybody want to work with us and right. how does that go? And people are amazing. Yeah. Like they're so actually willing to work with kids um, and um, it, it's it's inspiring. Yeah, so and that's it, a good. It brings me. Yeah. So yeah. It, was, it was it was really a very uh, heartening thing. As it was tempered by like, oh my gosh, I got to get to all this stuff together. In the next 10 days. In the next 10 days. So, yeah. But it's cool. all going to work out. Um, okay. Well, let's get to it. Uh, let's, first, we're going to hear from Dr. Maida, um, who's going to explain a little bit about the program and about problem-based learning. Um, and then when it's over, we'll come back. We'll have uh, a little bit of, uh, of, of recap. All right. So uh, here he is, uh, the deeply generous and the brilliant uh, Dr. Neil Maida. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast there, Dr. Maida. We're so glad that you uh, are, have some time to s- talk to us. Uh, we know you are a Hawken-adjacent uh, uh, <laughs> person of the community. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship to Hawken and uh, maybe a little bit of your background? Sure. So I think I'm very, very close to Hawken because my daughter, Seisha, went through Hawken from both middle school and high school and has incredibly fond memories. This is, she's a sophomore now, and uh, every vacation she comes home for a break, 
she stops by to say hi to the teachers. So that's my claim to fame is my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> we were lucky to have her at Hawkins. We were. I remember helping uh, her on her college essay, and she was on the soccer team with my daughter. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she's, uh, yeah, she's yeah. she's wonderful. And, and I know that um, the work that you do and have done uh, at the uh, Learner College of Medicine has been a big inspiration for the work that you know we're taking on, and uh, in particular for Scott Looney, and I uh, joke that you should probably petition for a retroactive tuition remission because you've inspired. Yeah. You, are, you, are, are you in process? <laughs> yeah, I, I would suggest that you move on that. Um, so uh, you, you and your work at the Learner School has really been an inspiration. Could you talk a little bit about sort of this mastery-based um, education track that you did with the school? Sure. So uh, there was a huge team. I was a small cog in this team. So the vision was that we, you know, there was a competency-based assessment system. And uh, we designed it in the sense that every physician is way more than just medical knowledge. And almost every physician that you have as a doctor half of them were in the bottom half of their class in medical knowledge, right? I mean, just by statistics. Statistics, so, true. Yeah. So, and you still, you choose them and you like them and you have a choice and you have your physician. So what is it that makes a good physician? So we started off by defining what would be the competencies that go into being a good physician. And the second point was that when we chase assessment of knowledge, we unfortunately tend to ignore all these other competencies. And I think that was uh, something that became very real. Uh, we, In medical schools, we have to still take one very high-stake summative exam, which is the USMLE, and every dean for curriculum and every educator in medicine knows that these are huge distractions from becoming a good physician. They're not actually helping us make good physician. It's a distraction because students have to do well in these to match into the next state. So we said, why don't we, we can't do anything about that, but everything else we're gonna change completely. Mm. So we said we would make a school with no tests, no grades, no lectures, competency-based where students will reflect and provide evidence on these and write a reflective essay, a two-page essay on each of the nine competencies, so an 18-page essay every year. And this essay will be used to determine if they mastered those competencies for that year, milestones, and then they can move forward. So that's kind of the summary of the philosophy of the school. Wow. And, and when did was, was this established? So the uh, schools matriculated its first class in 2004. So we are a program of Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, which has a traditional program, which is a very well-renowned program for many years. But this was a new program based at the Cleveland Clinic. So I'm so curious um, what your experience has been with the students. So how would you say students coming out of your program uh, are different from students who are more traditionally educated? Yeah, it's a, 
one of the things we would like to study formally. So I have anecdotal data. Mm -hmm. We do an exit interview every class that leaves at the end of their five years. But we are now starting. Now we have had students out for 10 years. Our first class graduated in 2009. Right. So yeah. we want to go back and actually see their tra trajectory as to how this might have made a difference. But anecdotally, we have students who have reflected on their own path, which we want them to do. And it begins, uh, there was one fascinating uh, PowerPoint that actually one of the students put together for a presentation at the American uh, Medical College Association, AAMC. And what she said was, we start off by looking at the feedback we give to the students. The students would say, oh, so if I get something narrative in the area that says you need to improve in this competency, we would take that as a D. Mm. And if I got a narrative comment saying you did well here, keep on doing that, they would take that as an A. So when they come from these amazing high school and colleges to come here, <laughs> we have trained them so much yeah. to look at grades. They mm -hmm. converted our narrative comments, which were formative, which were to help them become better into grades. They even would start by saying, I got 10 comments in areas of strength and four in the areas to, or for improvement, and it became a number. So this is where they start. And then she traced out this amazing pathway of somewhere in year three, they start to realize that this is actually for their own good. Actually, at six months, it starts to hit. By the end of second year, this is deeply ingrained. And I think the best thing she said was she would go to faculty and say, you know, I know what I'm good at. I've received lots of feedback. I have only two half days to work with you this week. Why don't you tell me what I can do better on? That'll be the best use of my, our time. And this is how she would start mm. her rotations in clinical practice where she hadn't met the preceptor before. So this is where a lot of them get to. Now, the big issue is, you know, the hidden curriculum in the real world is what it is. And so when they leave here, do they sustain this philosophy or do they lose a part of it? And that's what we want to go back and study. Right. Yeah. Well, so it sounds like even at the, at the level of a medical student, um, school has uh, infiltrated their thinking in such a way that it still becomes pretty transactional. Right, that and they convert these formative assessments of 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 guidance into some sort of numerical one that they can then use to sort themselves against others. Is that part of it too? Well, hopefully, we don't share uh, their numbers with anyone else. But you know, at the bars, they're, they're saying, they're, "I got ten, and you got yeah, seven, right?" I'm sure they do that informally. I'm sure they say, "What did you get?" I, so even, I'll give you one other anecdote. So we have an essay type questions. We try and steer away from all quizzes. The only quiz we have is a weekly quiz. It's for self-assessment. Mm -hmm. So it's an open book. They take it and then they themselves will uh, take it again to learn more. But the other thing we do for the depth of knowledge is an essay type question. And just to help standardize how we look at the essays, we have check boxes for the concepts that 
this ideal essay should cover. And initially, the first couple months, the students are counting the number of checkboxes they got. <laughs> the first oh, you know, I missed that concept, but I did get this. Right. And so this is what our education system has done to our students. Yeah. And they are constantly feeling like they are being judged in every interaction, even though they are paying schools to help them become better. Yeah. They think they are there to be judged. And this is the thinking that has become rampant, so much so that we train our faculty now. So when a student works with me for two weeks in medicine, for example, the first thing I say is, look, I'll tell you where I want you to be at the end of two weeks. I'll tell you every day where the gaps are. If you don't get there at the end of two weeks, half of it is on me. Mm. So I'm telling them we are partners and we are trying to make you better. The judgment doesn't come in here at all. Yeah. And we have to do this to students, especially visiting students, because uh, we do get students from other programs that are uh, on getting grades for every rotation. and we actually end up being a little schizophrenic because uh, our students don't need grades and they just want feedback to become better. And the other students are afraid to ask for feedback because they feel if they show they don't know something, they'll get a poor grade at the end. Right. And which is such a shame because this is their real chance to ask and say, I don't know. Right. And the grades take that away. Yeah, well, and you also think, I mean, who do you want to have as your doctor later? The person who was able to ask all the questions and get the answers and learn in the way they needed or the person who was afraid to? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so much of what you're saying resonates with our experience, I think, of um, of what can what can happen when students can truly believe that that their teacher or their mentor is there to help them grow um, and isn't going to then turn around and give them that kind of judging, evaluating feedback. Um, And I guess what I wonder is, and I know this, you spoke to this a little before in wanting to track the data, but how, how do you know, because this is a question I think I get, how do you know then that they really are learning uh, as much or, or more as they would if they were, were taking those tests. And I'm playing devil's advocate a little here. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I think uh, there is pretty good literature that if you want people to uh, learn some facts and be able to uh, relate them again, you have to practice that. And some kind of testing does help in retrieval practice and does mm-hmm. help people in recalling some information. Uh, on the same, on the other hand, obviously tests. The problem is that unless they apply this knowledge soon and continuously, they're going to forget whatever we ask in a test. Yes. Right. So that's the issue with, uh, you know, one issue with uh, this whole problem is they are learning medical knowledge, and are we developing a curriculum that helps them retain it and apply it? And it's not just in the test-taking environment. The second part is, again, goes back to the original question, which I think you're trying to get me to say. (laughs) There is way more to a physician than uh, learning. And so when we say Mm -hmm. learning, what are they learning? Mm -hmm. And really, I think uh, one of the areas of literature right now that's very uh, taking off is what we call professional identity formation. Mm -hmm. And what this talks Mm -hmm. about is just like 
and this is something you guys are closer to actually in a primary and middle school, is the child's mental development, and you go back to the cognitivists and Piaget and all those uh, theories, we are moving on to how does a person develop once they enter a profession, and how do they build their identity? And that includes things like honesty, integrity, character, but in the setting where they are being pulled in multiple different settings, no one is observing them, and they still do the right thing. Mm. And what does it mean to be that professional? And it, it's not something we can teach. We want them to learn and reflect. Though You can only internalize these concepts if you get feedback and you reflect on them. So that is the learning that is probably more important or at least as important than any other learning. And that, there's no other way to test, right? Yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I think those are the two issues. Well, I mean, I think part of what we're, you know, and yeah. why we're so attracted to this method is that these are the questions that we're wrestling with, right? And and what do we really want them to learn? What is going to help someone be successful in life? And some of these are things that don't end up on tests. In fact, um, there's really no way to put it on a test other than to create experiences where they get to practice them. Um, but, I, I mean, I guess I, I want to come back to this question about content, you know, um, it seems to me that medical students need to know a lot of information, right? I've had enough surgeries in my life. I'm glad that my neurosurgeon knew a lot about a spinal cord. It was a really important time for me, right? So how, do, how have you guys wrestled with this, you know, content versus the acquisition and practicing of some of these skills that you mentioned? Right. No, great question. And, uh, you know, unlike there are parts of medicine that don't change a lot. Uh, anatomy is an example. Histology is an example. It's kind of maybe once every decade we find a new ligament or a muscle, but otherwise is that's it's still changed. happening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they did find a new muscle in the leg. I was real in the lower extremity in the last two two years ago. I was really surprised. <laughs> so I think the uh, point I'm trying to make is medical knowledge changes so fast that more important than what they learn in medical school is how they learn and do they learn how to keep learning. Mm. So uh, there is no medical school that can cover the entire curriculum of what med a medical student should know at the time of graduation. This is actually interesting. So when I came into this role of curriculum dean for the school, one of the first things I said was, you know, when my daughter goes through high school or college, she can say, I forget what these are, algebra A or algebra B or something. Mm -hmm. And any, she can take that to any school and they are all learning the same thing. Mm -hmm. They may be learning it in different ways, but it's the content is a standard. If you look at the AAMC, which is the association that governs medical colleges, and ask them what is the curriculum for a medical student to have covered by the time they graduate, they do not prescribe it. Mm. Because then you are asking for every student to have known everything, which means you couldn't do anything else during the med school. Right. So the content is so vast and it changes so fast that there is just no school that will cover all this. So what every school tries to do is cover the foundation. In a way, the USMLE is there. It was meant to be a standards test to a pass-fail test. A step one was do you know enough to be a safe physician? 
And that's what your neurosurgeon needed to know. Fingers crossed, <laughs> yeah. Right? Hopefully he passed that one. I'm sure he did. He did, he did. So, Good job. But the rest, it has become a number, a three-digit score, almost like the ACTs and SATs, that is used to gain admission to the next level of training. Right. So what we are really focusing on, getting back to point, is how do students learn? How do they learn collaboratively? How do they learn to help each other learn? And do they have a system of continuously staying up to date with knowledge? And that's what we try and do. Right. So we have a problem-based learning curriculum. We give actual cases, patients, hypothetical cases to students, and they work in groups of eight and solve them over a week. Then we give them the next case. That's great. Yeah. You know, I think uh, that that idea that keeps coming up here of habits and of internalizing those practices. Um, I think it, that part is so important and it resonates with a conversation um, we had here a couple weeks ago with some teachers who were worried that as we move toward the, a mastery-based system instead of a graded system for the mastery school, um, that uh, how do you keep it from becoming a sort of uh, chasing of check boxes? You know, then everything's about a rubric and you have to have gotten all your checks, um, like you were saying. And part of what where our conversation went was in thinking about the cultivation of those habits and those skills. And what, what does it really mean to, to learn something in a way that it is transferable um, and applies to new contexts and it sounds like that's what you are. Um, that's what you want for the doctors you're training, and it's what we want for our students too. I think, you yeah, know. No, I think absolutely. That's very profound, and I I think most educators know this. The problem is the system for gaining admission to the next level of training right. is right. completely lined up against any such movement, and so I'm actually very very impressed that you guys had the courage and uh, vision to pursue this. Well, Scott Looney has got courage <laughs> and he's got vision. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and Julia is, uh, is taking the, taking the wheel to, to make it, to make it happen. But none of us can do this without models. And that's one of the that's reasons right. why this is so powerful to see what you guys are doing. Yeah. Well, so I'm wondering, uh, as we are embarking on this work, do you have, lessons learned or advice that you would give us based on your own experience? Yeah, so one, and I'm sure parents will be listening to this podcast, is to manage parents' expectations. Um, uh-huh. Keep going. What, what's the advice? Because, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I won't tell you how you do that. <laughs> so, Darn. But I think managing it and, uh, you know, I, I think they want the best for their kids. Yeah. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. or fortunately, part of that means getting into colleges. And so mm-hmm. just, uh, I think you guys are very sensitive to it. You've thought about a lot about this, but managing that expectation and conveying that vision, I think uh, that eventually these will be the kids who will do the best. So that, uh, for us, it was really easier because uh, students chose to come to us, right. and mm-hmm. part of the, um, you know, good thing for us was we had a lot of applicants who wanted to do this, and we had a choice of who to take, and we clearly looked for people who believed in this vision. So that is one. I think the second is, it takes a little while 
for students to break away from what they have, like we just said. And so it'll take a little while for everyone to get comfortable. And the good thing is culture wins, nothing else wins. And so building that culture all the way from top to bottom. So when someone mentions a grade or mentions something, gently pointing out what really the vision is. Mm -hmm. And slowly the culture develops because as each year passes by, the seniors will train their incoming class. Peer learning works very, very well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, once the uh, first year's class has learned this, internalized it, they are their best ambassadors. And they will be the ones who will help their peers, the juniors, get uh, into this. Uh, I, I think that probably has worked the best for us. When students come for interviews, we just let them talk to the, uh, our existing students. Yeah. And yeah. when they come in for orientation, we again let them talk to our uh, students who are here. And I think that has helped the most. That's That sounds like really good advice. And, I, you know, in listening to you, I also thought, I wonder if 14-year-olds are more malleable or more easily de-schooled yeah. or more quickly de-schooled than medical students who've had an extra eight years or more of steeping in the stew, um, as Scott would say, of the sort of traditional education and, and grades. It'll be interesting yeah. to see. I, I would hope so. And I think <laughs> Me too. The first class that you graduate and when they do well, and yes. unfortunately, when I say, well, I meant get into colleges they want, sure. mm -hmm. uh, all colleges are going to work for them, believe me. But uh, mm -hmm. they consider equate success with getting into a specific college. But when that happens and they are well received, that'll take care of parent parental expectations. I think for us, we were told you are, don't have any tests, high stake tests in uh, school. How are your kids going to do when they go to USMLE? They aced it. Did they? That mm -hmm. was that was one yeah. of my final questions to you. Is okay. did they? How'd they do? And they continue to ace it. Yeah. I mean, they. So it's like, yeah, they do prepare for those tests. Unfortunately, there is no. It's a high stake, multiple choice test, and we give them time to prepare for that because. But they do it themselves, mm. and uh, they do it do fine. So. And it's almost a detractor because if we didn't have to give them time to prepare for that, we would do some amazing other yeah, creative more, stuff. But right. we don't have we don't we give up that time. Right. Yeah. Well, this has been uh, really illuminating um, and uh, and gratifying. I I am so glad we are able to have this conversation with you, and we'll come we'll we'll check back with you when we get a little further along. See what you see what you what you think. So. Well, it was a pleasure, and I'm really, really proud of what you guys are doing, and it's so close to here. Yes. Uh, Scott's actually going to stop by, I think, to talk to our chief academic officer, Dr. Young, yes. because uh, there's proximity and uh, there is uh, probably good opportunities for some synergy. Yeah. Terrific. We're, we're looking forward to that. Great. All right. Well, thanks for ma making the time, and uh, we'll check in soon. All right. Take care. All right. You All too. Thank right, bye -bye. you. Bye. See ya. Well, so there it is. Uh, he's an impressive and uh, kind, kind, thoughtful What a man. great, yeah, what a, what a generous man. Yeah. yeah. So the, uh, the notion that mastery-based learning is this disruptive force 
um, for schools, for our kind of school, is is obviously you know something we're really interested about. It's also really interesting that it is uh, it has already been tested though in these medical schools, particularly That's right. with learner, um, and it just seems like it's a more humane and ultimately more effective tool given you know all the fundamental shifts that have happened in the way we can access information and the ways knowledge is evolving at hyperspeed so that was my big takeaway um from talking with them i agree i loved what he said about um working with students on who are with him on a rotation and setting goals together and him taking responsibility with them for them achieving those goals that that's that coach um, that coaching stance that we talk about all the time that the yeah. mastery based learning approach facilitates. Right. Yeah. Right. But you know, as we were talking a little bit off air, like it's, it seems like it is such a disruption that it, the earlier you can get a student to yes. think this way, probably the better. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that part of what's beautiful about adolescent uh, adolescence as a time, as a phase is that, uh, that's that moment. There's that window, right, where their brains are forming and faster than at any other time than in infancy, yeah. and you have this chance to affect how they get wired. So that going through that de-schooling process when you're 14, as opposed to when you're 22 or 24 or older or you know 36, um, it's you know it's, it's 48. Go yeah, ahead. it's right. It's um. It, it's easier when you get them younger right? <laughs> um, to change the way that they're thinking about what the purpose of school is. Yeah. And also just the habits, right. Of yes. reflection and, you know, of ownership of being able to say what you know and don't know and not feel like everything is at stake. Yes. You know? And that I, I see it all the time in the classroom, right. Just the, the timidity of some mm-hmm. students to be able to say like, I don't, I don't know because it feels like everything's weighted on it as opposed mm-hmm. to like, that's how learning happens is when you're like, I don't know how to do something. How do I do it? Right. <laughs> right. Do it this way. Oh, try again. Right. All that, totally. you know, the way we learn most things when they're not in the, <laughs> the laboratory of school right. is, is, is more free. Like, you know, I real I'm not great at, at weed whacking. I would love for someone to show me how to do how to like And I would, if it were graded though, I wouldn't acknowledge that I really don't know how to use my weed whacker very well. Right. So you'd be out there with the weed whacker waving and wait, smiling. Yeah. And like, to... Oh, I'm totally good at this. Or I yeah. just hire someone. Right. But okay. But I guess my point is, <laughs> has the well, metaphor broken down? The metaphor possibly? is broken down. <laughs> my point is that in, in, in life, we generally learn by acknowledging what we don't know. Absolutely. Right. And um, and it seems like that's harder in school. So yeah. what a wonderful thing to do to, to sort of un- dismantle that when they're young. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so uh, I thought that that was one of the great things that he said. So you know, we want to thank Dr. Maida for uh, stopping by through Skype uh, and uh, for sharing with us, uh, with us all his uh, insights and his experience. Obviously, thanks to you, Julia, for making the time to do this and anyone out there who's still listening. You can find our podcast on iTunes and other spots where you find podcasts. Please follow Redesigning School on any of your social media uh, channels that float your boat. Uh, we're, uh, we've got them on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all the rest. Um, you can uh, go to redesigningschool.org where you can ask us questions, give us comments, feedback on the podcast, what, what you like, what you don't like, um, and, uh, and all that. So anyway, thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll be back very soon. Thanks, Terry. See ya. Bye.